Okay, so like spring, uh, you know, like daylight savings, we spring forward to a couple of chapters in Mark for Palm Sunday, and we went all the way to Thessalonians, and now we are back in Mark chapter 9. So the title of uh, today's sermon is, Who is Our Real Enemy? And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark chapter 9, and we'll be in verses 38 through 50. So in my job, I work with foot and ankle surgeons, and they do all kinds of surgery in the foot and the ankle. When a patient goes in for a surgery, in addition to asking their name multiple times, their date of birth multiple times, they are also asked, they will also be asked what kind of surgery they are having and specifically which side of the body they are having the surgery. Uh, in fact, the staff with the patient's assistance will mark the leg uh, being operated on using a marker to make sure it's the right leg. These protocols have been put in place to prevent what is called the wrong site surgery and uh, where either the wrong part of the body or wrong procedure is done on a wrong patient. And based on insurance claims data, uh, in Florida, in the state of Florida, 178 wrong site and 82 wrong procedure and 34 wrong patient surgeries were reported in the years 2000 to 2003. So as crazy as it sounds, there have been cases where a patient went in for a surgery in one leg, and when they woke up from the anesthesia, <laughs> the sur- they realized the surgeon had operated on the wrong leg. Whoops. <laughs> so I hope none of us here had to experience something like that. So in our passage today, we see the disciples were like one of those surgeons, you know, operating the wrong leg. They were trying to fix something when Jesus is teaching them what they should be focusing on instead. And they were fighting the wrong enemy. But Jesus is teaching them who the real enemy is. This is very important because if we don't know who the real enemy is, we'll be fighting the wrong enemy. And second, the enemy that Jesus is talking about has the potential to destroy our lives. So this is serious stuff. So let's read our passage, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Mark 9, verse 38 to 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward uh, to speak uh, evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire, 
Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would teach us today as Jesus taught his disciples when he walked with them on this earth. We pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we may see the truths in your word and the eternal perspectives of your kingdom. Fill us, O God, with the knowledge of your will and strengthen us with your Holy Spirit in our inner being so that we may be able to live as your disciples in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we dive into our text, let's get a sense of where we are in the book of Mark. We are now in the second half of the book of Mark. And in the first half, Mark talks about the identity of Jesus, the sovereign son of God. We saw all the exciting stuff, right? The healings, the casting out of demons and miracles like the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. And so Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority over sickness, demons, and nature as the sovereign son of God. But now we are in the second half uh, of the book of Mark and things begin to change. We see less miracles, but we see a lot more teachings from Jesus. And he's also moving physically from the northern region of Galilee towards the southern region of Judea. And more specifically, he's moving to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified and delivered to the Romans to be crucified. And so Jesus is now teaching his disciples about what does it mean to follow him as their master, as disciples of Jesus. And we are here at the end of the chapter uh, 9. So if you remember the last sermon from Mark chapter 9 a few weeks ago by Nate, we are still in the living room in a house in Capernaum with Jesus and his disciples. You know, this is the continuation of that awkward discussion that uh, they had with Jesus when he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they were so ashamed to even tell him what they were talking about, but Jesus knew anyway. And so he began to teach them what true greatness looks like because they were debating who among them was the greatest. So this is the continuation of that, of that discussion. And so here is the summary of today's sermon. And so this is what we'll be working towards as we work through our passage today. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to fight sin and not people so that we maintain our witness in this world in light of eternity. So first, people are not our enemy. So Jesus has been talking to his disciples about how he's going to suffer and die and on the third day rise again. But they had no clue of what he's talking about. He does that a total of three times in the book of Mark, and he has already done that twice. And so in this house, uh, Jesus teaches, when he was teaching them about what true greatness looks like by using an example of a child... And he said, if you want to be great, you must be the last and a servant of all. And so after listening to what Jesus was teaching them, now the disciples are trying to save face, right? So they're trying to say something, what they did, which seemed very noble in their eyes. So look at verse 38. John says, in fact, the gospel of Luke says, John answered. 
And he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us, expecting a good job from Jesus. (laughs) Have you ever been in a conversation where you said something really stupid, and then you're trying to save face, but what you say after that makes it worse? (laughs) That's kind of what is going on with the disciples here. To be fair, though, it's not hard to imagine why the disciples felt the need to stop this man who was casting out demons. If you remember, just recently in the beginning of chapter 9, they were rebuked by Jesus for not being able to cast out a demon. Oops, they forgot to pray. (laughs) And so now they see someone, probably a disciple of Jesus, probably a disciple successfully casting out demons, but he's not one of the apostles, the chosen twelve. So they just could not believe that he is having success in something that they couldn't. They were the ones who were given formal authority by Jesus to heal diseases and to cast out demons uh, in chapter 6. So on the surface, you see like the argument seems like coming from a place of good heart, like as if they are looking out for the honor of Jesus, uh, which reminds us of the story of Eldad and Medad in the book of Numbers, where you know, Moses uh, chooses 70 elders from the, leaders of Is- from the people of Israel, and he's in- inviting all the elders to come to present themselves in the tent of meeting so God could pour out his spirit on them. But these two guys decide to defy Moses and stay in the tent. However, when the spirit of God came upon the elders and they all prophesied, these two guys began to prophesy in their tents. So Joshua is really upset. Moses, we should stop these guys. They are defying you. They should not be allowed to prophesy. But Moses says to Joshua, are you jealous for my behalf? I would rather that God would pour out his spirit on all the people of Israel. So John is trying to be like Joshua in the story, right? But notice what he's saying. He's not saying he was not following you, Jesus, but rather he says, He was not following us. So maybe they are looking out for Jesus, but it's also possible that their egos were hurt. So they tried to stop them. But let's not be too quick to judge the disciples, right? We all do the same thing, don't we? When we see someone else succeed in something that we fail, and especially if they don't belong to the right group, it's not easy for us to accept that. Maybe you can relate to this, you know, someone in your work or school or in your business, or maybe it could be someone in your own family or extended family. And sadly, the same thing also happens in many churches today. All you have to do is go on Twitter and you can see Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus going after each other and other churches and denominations. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 39, he says, Do not stop him. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey guys, he is not the problem. He is not your enemy. You're operating the wrong leg. As commentator David Garland says, a deep sense of lowliness understands that God can use anyone and applauds others who are successful for God, even though they may not be on our team. Jesus' reaction implies that that disciples who go along with him must get along with others. 
I, I really like what um, uh, Jesus' response here is. He just doesn't say, you know, you must just get along with this guy or, you know, what you did was wrong. But he gives, us, he gives them three reasons. And he gives three, four statements. He says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. So instead of getting mad at them, which is what I would have done, or telling them, like, what you guys did was wrong, Jesus is helping them to see why they were wrong. He is unraveling the narrow-minded knots in their thinking, Um, The pride and self-centeredness of the disciples blinded them from seeing that this person was actually on their team. And then Jesus does this amazing thing. He's teaching them a kingdom principle. Just like he taught them a little while ago that how in order to be great, you must be a servant. Now he is teaching them to see things from God's perspective, eternal perspective. Look at this amazing promise. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Just think about that. So the giving, up of wa- the giving a cup of water is just a basic courtesy in Eastern culture. That's what you do when guests come to your home. And I've done that when I was growing up in that culture. But what Jesus is saying is, even that basic act of courtesy, when someone does to a disciple of Christ, they will not lose their reward. What an amazing encouragement, right? Every little thing done to a follower of Jesus is not forgotten by God. You don't have to be a conference speaker or have book deals or websites or podcasts to be great in his kingdom. If what Jesus said is true, which it is, then parents, if you're changing your kids' diapers, single parents, brothers, if you're helping someone move in the church, sisters, if you're cooking a meal for someone in need, or if any one of you are with someone when they have lost a loved one or in a time of crisis, anything we do, small or big, is not lost in the record books of heaven. And so that's a great motivation for us as disciples, you know, to see the eternal implications of our little acts of service. Sometimes we don't usually see that. And the disciples needed to learn this truth, and so do we. And if we truly understand this, this will set us free from the jealousy, the envy, and hatred that we feel towards others, and help us to truly serve one another in love. And so that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, he says, And let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen? So now Jesus then moves on to show the disciples uh, what they should actually be focused on. And if people... Um, or not our enemy, then who is the real enemy? In verses 42 to 48, he is now Jesus talking about sin, and he talks about two sources of sin. First, the external sources, and then the internal. Verse 42, he says, 
whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. You know, as Jesus was saying this, he probably had that same child in his arms when he was teaching about receiving a child in his name. And remember, this was probably the house of Peter or Andrew because they are in Capernaum. That's where Jesus called them first. And so Jesus is continuing to use that same example and language to show that nobody is insignificant in God's kingdom. Because children in ancient Near East culture were not considered significant. So however, when he says little ones here, he's not just referring to children. He says the little ones who believe in me, referring to his disciples. So anyone or everyone who believes in him, young or old, is valuable in the eyes of God. So but notice the contrast compared to how even giving a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus will not lose its reward. Now on the flip side, if anyone causes the little ones who believe in Jesus to sin, it would be disastrous. So the key to understand this is to remember, based on these two verses, that what anyone does to those who believe in Jesus, both good or bad, is doing it to Jesus himself. And it has eternal consequences. The good will be rewarded and the bad will be punished. Millstones were used in those days to grind flour, which would then be used to bake bread. And there were two kinds of millstones. One was a lighter one that you could operate with your own hand. And then there was this larger, huge one, heavier one, that can only be turned by a donkey. I don't know how many of you watched the movie Star. It's a kid animation movie, I recommend. It's a Christmas movie. There is a donkey called Bo, the main character who is a mill donkey. So here he says, you know, the great millstone is probably referring to this latter huge millstone. But it seems like a terrible way to die, right? Like casting this millstone around your neck and being cast into a sea. But notice Jesus is saying it would be better. So on a scale of 1 to 10, dying with the millstone around your neck is only 5 or (laughs) 6. In Jesus' scale, right? What happens to this person who messes with the disciple of Jesus is it like eight or nine? It's worse. So God, Jesus is using the contrast to highlight the significance of what would happen to this person. So this truth is a source of both great comfort and a sober warning. For those who believe in him, this is comforting, right? For us, because it reveals the heart of God towards his children. How much he loves us and he cares for us. And even though in your life right now it might not seem, based on your circumstances, that God cares for you, but you can take heart in this truth that God does not forget what happens to you. It reminds us of an Old Testament passage in Zechariah 2 verse 8. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, said the Lord of hosts, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. This is a prophecy, eschatological prophecy referring to Jerusalem and Zion and how God would uh, revenge, take revenge on the enemies of Israel. On the other hand, for those who cause others to sin, this, is a, this truth is a sober warning. And Jesus wants his listeners to take this seriously 
and uh, he wants them, this truth to affect their hearts. You know, as uh, commentator William Barclay says, to sin is terrible, but to teach another to sin is infinitely worse. So based on the seriousness of Jesus' warning, it's prudent for us to reflect on our own relationship with other believers. Am I a person who uh, helps them grow in their walk with Christ? Am I a person who serves them? Or am I a person who hinder and cause others to stumble? It's never a good idea to mess with God's children. And then Jesus moves on to take the same seriousness of warning of external influences of sin to the internal influences of sin. As we read in verse 43 to 48, he says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it off. So the language that Jesus is using is very vivid and gory. But what does this mean? Are we supposed to take this literally and chop my hand off? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. You know, self-mutilation is not something endorsed in the Torah. But Jesus is using strong language to communicate the seriousness of sin. He's urging his disciples to use whatever means necessary to avoid sin. And so why is sin so bad? Because sin separates us from the life of God. You know, God wants us to live in communion with him. And it's, it, this reminds us of uh, God's command to Adam and Eve, right? He chose them to choose life over death. But what did they do? They chose death by disobeying and rebelling against God. So two times, Jesus here in this um, uh, exhortation, he is talking about entering life. It is better to enter life. And once he says, uh, entering the kingdom of God. So he's talking about participating in the life of God and in the life of the consummated kingdom of God. In contrast to being thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire. You know, the word hell that's used here is a, a Greek word is Gehenna. It's just a reference to the Hinnom Valley in the southwest of the city of Jerusalem. And that's where in the Old Testament, during the ungodly king's days, they practiced child sacrifice. And then later it was turned into a garbage dump by one of the godly kings, King Josiah. And that's why that valley became referred to as the hell of unquenchable fire. And the reference to worm not dying and unquenchable fire is also from Isaiah 66, verse 24, where it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So what Jesus is talking about is the fate of those who live a sinful, continue to live a sinful life and rebel against God. Consequences of sin and rebelling against God is eternal fire and a life that is separate from living in communion with him. And so the judgment and the wrath of God for sin cannot be escaped. But praise God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? There is now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And that's why for us who are saved, the exhortation of Paul is very helpful. In Colossians 3, 5 and 6, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And Romans 8, 13, he says, For you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen? So it's so easy for us to get distracted just like the disciples, right? And like looking at what's going on in someone else's life that we fail to see what's going on in our own hearts. And so that's what Jesus wanted the disciples to see and he wants us to see today. But it's not something that, you know, what Paul is encouraging us to do is we, it's not something that we can do on our own. It is only through the gospel and what, G, what God did for us through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh and allow the Holy Spirit to bear his fruit in our own lives. Amen? So, but why is it so important to recognize who the real enemy is and focus on sin and fighting sin in our lives? And that leads us to the last section uh, of our passage. Verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what is Jesus talking about here? And he's saying three things about salt. And so there are multiple interpretations of what salt means and what Jesus meant by the use of salt in this section. But it's most likely referring to the practice of the Old Testament sacrifices. Remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And so salt was added as part of the sacrifice. It was called the salt of the covenant. In Leviticus 2.13, it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So what first Jesus is saying is, as disciples of Jesus, we will be purified by fire or made acceptable by fire, like the sacrifices on the altar were made acceptable by salt. I love what um, uh, the commentator James Edward says. He says, testing by fire is not simply a painful necessity of discipleship, but it's an offering itself pleasing to God, a seasoning or salting with fire. If fires of trials and adversity beset the faithful, they do so as a consequence of their following the Son of Man who must suffer. In costly discipleship to the Son of Man, believers become salt and light to the world. Amen? So as followers of Christ, we are called to follow the way of our master. Everyone will be tested with fire. And maybe some of you are in the midst of a fiery trial right now. But you can take heart because you are walking in the way of your master. You know, our best lives are not right now as the world might want you to believe. Our best lives are ahead of us. When the kingdom of God is consummated and Jesus reigns as a glorious, undisputed king. Remember, as Nate reminded us a few weeks ago, there is no crown without the cross. And second, Jesus is saying, don't lose your flavor. He's using the analogy of a salt as a preservative. So we are called to maintain our Christian witness in this world. 
even as the world around us are going deeper and deeper into sin, we as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are the salt of this earth who are supposed to bring flavor and preserve the earth. Now imagine if we hated our sins and loved people so well, the world will begin to take notice. Hmm, there is something good in here. It's tasty. But on the other hand, if we lose our flavor, then we are good for nothing, as Jesus says. We are useless. We are just like the people in the rest of this world. And finally, Jesus is saying to have salt in us in this context is to live with peace with one another. Remember, the disciples were fighting with an anonymous exorcist. And so we are called to live in peace, not only as brothers and sisters, but with also with people, those who are seemingly on the outside. So next time, before you post a comment on social media or talk about someone behind their back, just watch your words. Are we peacemakers or are we peacebreakers? And based on what Jesus is calling us to do, we are to live in peace with one another. So in conclusion, now it all comes full circle, right? It started with the statement of John about arguing with this person who was casting out demon. And Jesus uses that as a teaching moment to teach his disciples who they should actually fight and who their real enemy is. We all don't want to be like the surgeon who operates on the wrong leg, right? So as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to hate sin and fight sin and love people. And we are called to do that because that's who God is. He hates sin, but he loves his people. We are, part, we are called to participate in his life, the life of Christ that now flows through us, through his Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And so allowing these truths that Jesus taught his disciples about the eternal perspective of God's kingdom can help us to live that in our lives. If we do that, then we can continue to maintain our witness for Christ in this world. Imagine the impact the church, the body of Christ, the global church, when every Christian in this world has this gospel-centered deep hatred towards sin and Christ-like loving kindness towards people. And we are more open-minded and inclusive and not divisive. And we are all eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Church, it is important for us to grow in this, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of this world that we live in. In a time where the world is more divided than ever, it is important for us, it is important for the world to see the church and witness the disciples of Jesus Christ model this with grace and to do it really well. But it's not like this is not happening already. There are so many instances in our own body where you, so many of you model this very beautifully. All you have to do is go to church center and see the list of messages. Every time I see that, it's a beautiful thing to see. The love, the care, and how one person serves the other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The community groups, the D groups, the kids ministry, and all the volunteers. It may not be seen or recognized by the eyes of men, but what you do is not hidden from the eyes of God. And so let's be encouraged to continue that, to do the good work, 
because our labor is not in vain. And all the more now with, as new members have joined our body, that's what it's all about. Loving each other and serving one another. But before I pray and close, I would like to take this opportunity to invite anyone who does not know Christ. Would you surrender your life to Jesus today? He died for your sins on your behalf. So you don't have to be cast away from his presence eternally. Your eternal destiny is at stake. As Jesus said, everything we have done, good or bad, will one day have to be accounted for. So the question is, are you going to pay the bill or would you willing to take Jesus up on his offer to pay your dues for your sins? And you can come to him today just as you are. And you can be set free from the bondage of sin and from the fear of death and penalty of sin and have joy and hope and peace knowing that your eternal destiny is safe in the arms of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for teaching us this morning, just as you taught, Jesus taught his disciples that day in Capernaum. Father, we often get so distracted looking on what's going on around us and seeing the lives of people. But Father, would you help us to turn our attention to our own hearts? Give us your love and grace for people in our lives and those around us. And would you replace the hatred of people with the hatred for sin in our hearts? Father, we pray for us here in Cross of Grace, but we also pray for all the saints in the global body of Christ. Help us all to live with Christ-like kindness towards others and help us to mortify the desires of the flesh. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, the helper who is there to help us to live this life. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.